Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. We've been in this series on Jacob, and um, I've really, I've really enjoyed this series. I, I find Jacob to be a a really good representation to us of exactly the kind of people that God comes alongside that and, and that he uses. And today, our f- story will, I think, strike our modern sensibilities as, as at best slightly odd and at worst kind of misogynistic and oppressive. And I hope that we can sort of wade through some of the cultural distance that is, is presented to us. Um, this is one of those stories that is often kind of half told in the Bible or glossed over. But when we stop to ponder it, what we see is this tightly woven narrative about the long arc of life. The joys, the wounds, the disappointments, the relationships that we all have to kind of navigate. And so today what I want to do is just tell you this story. Just to to walk through and wade through this story together. Because the incredible thing about the narrative of Scripture, this, this book that we uh, try to uh, find our lives uh, uh, wrapped around, the incredible thing about it is that often people think the Bible is prescriptive. So when I talk to people that aren't Christians, they think that this is filled with a bunch of rules that I'm trying to keep track of. And I understand why they think that. It actually, uh, it, they didn't make that up. And so what they think is that I'm like looking chapter and verse, but like, okay, what do I do about this? Oh no, there's nothing in there about that. Oh, oh no, I have to think. Um, people get ra- wrapped up in the prescriptive nature of Scripture. You must do these things to be the kind of person that God will love. But if you read it, and for many of you, you've spent time reading the Scripture, what you find is something quite different. You find that it's not a prescription for do these things and things will go well for you, but rather it's this immersive narrative. It's immersive, and first, it's, it's, it's immersive in the sense that God himself immerses his life in our world, not in a way where he becomes contained within it, but where he can reveal himself within it. And as we will return to soon, he immerses himself within it, This world, God comes to it and he reveals himself, not as it should be, but as it is. If God waited for the world to be the kind of place where a holy God could come, he would never come to us. But this is not the kind of God that we see in the scriptures. What we see in actuality is a God who will stop at nothing. Nothing will stop him from coming to us. He immerses himself in our world. And today we'll see how this strange story with its antiquated cultural norms, with its reflection of patriarchy, actually has a lot to say to our modern world. Today we'll see this other layer of what it means to be immersed in the narrative of Scripture where it invites our lives in, where it's inviting us to see ourselves in light of who God is. And so we're going to turn over to Genesis 29, and we'll start in verse 15. So if you have a Bible, or you have a Bible on your phone, Please. Jacob has been staying with Laban, his uncle. 
It says in verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Have any of you ever had your employer ask you, Tell me, what shall your wages be? Well, <laughs> glad you asked. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely, is our translation, and Rachel was graceful and beautiful. Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your, your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. This is, I think, you know, most father-in-laws feel this way. It's like, hey, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Well, like, better you than some other loser. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Now, this is a good line, Jacob. Well played. Now, as we saw a few weeks ago, Jacob has had to flee his, to his uncle Laban's house and because his brother Esau wants to kill him. Uh, we're kind of tr- backtracking in the story. We, we fast-forwarded to the wrestling narrative, and now we're kind of back in the in-between. What brought Jacob from his uncle's house to that moment where he wrestled with God? And Jacob has been living at Laban's house, working for him. And Laban comes to him with an offer, and it's a really generous offer. You should work for me for nothing. Even though you're my, my nephew, even though you're my kin, I want to I take care of you. I want to be a, a good steward of the things that I have. And so he comes to him and says, tell me, what should you make? Now, Jacob had met Rachel previously by a well in the previous chapter. And Jacob sees her, and he sees her coming. She is tending her father's flock and her sheep, and she has to go to the well and to draw water out. And each day they put this big stone over the well. And and they have to lift the stone off in order to get the water. And Jacob, you know, being the kind of manly man that he is, sees Rachel coming, thinks she's beautiful, and is like, I got this. And steps up to the well and, like, hoists the thing, the job of, like, three or four men. He's like feet of strength. Look what I have done for you. Um, And so Jacob has already seen Rachel. He's already been drawn to her. And and it's sort of this Hollywood narrative. Uh, Jacob sees her and is drawn to her. And then you see this like, okay, you have to serve me for seven years in order to to have uh, my daughter's hands as Laban. And usually that's where the story stops. And so we're going to see how we continue on and we see something actually quite different. In verse 17, and this is really important for our purposes today, the NRSV text, this is the New Revised Standard Version. It's a version I like. Some of you guys have ESV, which is the English Standard Version. Um, I don't like that one as much, only because they don't use, like when Paul will say brothers, and he writes the, word, the Greek word for brothers, the NRSV will say brothers and sisters. Because in our culture, it's, it's understood that when he's saying that, he's implying the whole church. The ESV wants to stick to a very wooden translation, and so they'll often just say brothers. And so I like the idea that when we speak, especially at church, that we're immersing and involving both, uh, both sides of the equation here. So for me, I like the NRSV. There's a couple of other things. Uh, I don't recommend the NRSV for the Psalms, but beyond that, it's a very good translation. ESV is really good. Many of you read the NIV, also great. Um, so please, w- the best Bible is the one that you read. Let's start there, right? But we have the NRSV, and they've made a decision here. 
And they translate this phrase in verse 17. It says, Leah's eyes were lovely. But it's unlikely that this word should be translated lovely. Frankly, we don't know what this word means. People have suggested that this is an idiom of some sorts. That, that, and, and people have read a lot into this. Um, and so Leah's eyes being lovely. But I like what the NRSV does because a lot of translations, and maybe in some of your versions, it says but here. And so what it's doing is it's setting up a contrast between the beauty of Leah and the beauty of Rachel. So usually the phrase reads something like this. Leah's eyes were weak. Leah's eyes were soft. But Rachel was beautiful and gracious. And often what the translators are doing there is they're setting up this dichotomy. They're saying, you know, and usually what happens then, Rachel's made out to be this beauty queen of sorts. And Leah is made out to be the matronly and unattractive. But I think that has a lot more to say about the people reading and translating this narrative than it does about Leah. What's important for our purposes today is that Leah, whatever her appearance may be, is not preferred by Jacob. Jacob loved Rachel, and so he says, I will serve you, Laban. I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And so we go on in verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Gentlemen, I would not recommend this as a way of asking for your uh, fiance's hand in marriage. Just... If you want to avoid awkward conversations like I do, let's just not go there. So Laban gathered together all of the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her attendant. And when morning came, it was Leah. Jacob has served seven years with the understanding that at the end of this seven years, he would receive not Leah as his wife, but Rachel. And now Laban has pulled a fast one, a trick on Jacob, which it was so ironic in so many ways. Now, what's going on here? Now, it's possible that Jacob had partaken of the feast a little too much here, right? Like we have a wedding party. Often wedding celebrations in the ancient Near East were days-long affairs. It's possible that he's just a little drunk. It doesn't say that. And, and really, it, he doesn't quite notice the switch, and we're not really told how or why. What we can be sure of is that they didn't have any electricity in that day, that it was very dark at night. And when morning came, G Jacob realizes what has happened. He has been given Leah as a bride, and there's no going back now. Like, Jacob can't say, hey, you, you know what you did? Like, let's just cancel this out. Like, it doesn't work like that in this culture. Once these two people have slept together, they are husband and wife. And it says in verse 25, Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Now, there's just so much incredible irony woven into this statement. I mean, how did, did Jacob get to Laban in the first place? He fled his home. He fled from his house, his parents, Isaac and Rebekah, because he deceived his own brother. His name literally means deceiver. And Jacob had played the part of Esau, gone to his father and said, Father, I am Esau. 
And he had stolen Esau's blessing. And now Jacob, in his life, is being deceived. Laban has uh, pulled a fast one on him, and Jacob has met his match. The deceiver has become the deceived. And it says in verse 26, And Laban said, This is not done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. And Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife. Laban gave him his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her maid. That will become more important in just a moment. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. So Jacob doesn't have to work another seven years in order to receive Rachel. He receives her on the front end of this bargain. But now, Jacob has two wives. It should be noted that even in this polygamous ancient Near Eastern culture, this is highly unusual to marry sisters. Leviticus 19 actually says, don't, like, this is prohibited, don't do this. Again, we have a parent, and we saw this with Rebecca and her sons, Jacob and Esau. We saw this in their lives. We have a parent intervening in the lives of their children and making things far more complicated than it would seem. Now look at the succession of events that follows. Look at verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now this idea of barrenness has been, um, has been a running theme throughout the Genesis narrative. It starts with Sarah. God comes to Abraham and he says to her, or he says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. But the problem is, is that Sarah can't have kids. And decades go by. And eventually Sarah is able to conceive because of the power of God. And then we see this in the life of Rebecca. And it says that Isaac prayed for her and that Rebecca was able to conceive. But here again we have the barrenness. But in this circumstance we have something else going on. Jacob has two wives. The only problem is not this sense of barrenness, this, this thing that God has to overcome. Now we have this whole complex relational thing going on here. And in this society, again, no commentary on the morality of all this, but childbearing was the way that a woman secured her place in the world. It was her most important contribution. To bear children, especially sons, was to, was to be able to contribute to the family line. Additionally, sons provided economic security for their mothers should their father die. And often the mothers who didn't die during the course of childbirth did live longer than their husbands because they were often significantly younger. The Hebrew word here for, for Leah being unloved is not just that she's unloved, but in fact that she is hated. And when God sees that Leah is unloved, he intervenes. Friends, this is a beautiful thing about our God. He always sees the outcast, the unloved, the forgotten. He identifies his life with them, and look at what happens Leah is unloved. She is not wanted, and God sees her. It says in verse 32, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she named him Reuben. 
For she said, because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Do you hear the longing? Surely now. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. She conceived again and bore a son. She said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she ceased bearing. I owe this this uh, beautiful reflection to a pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer. I was listening to a sermon of his, and he, he did this thing with these names, and I was like, wow, I'd never thought of that before. But if you pay attention to the names of the sons, you get a sense for Leah's state of mind. Now, friends, I, I know for many of us, we've been in places where we were unwanted, where we felt that. And it's rarely lost on us when a person or a group of people don't want us around, that feeling of insecurity, that feeling that just sort of pulls, you're like, I don't belong here, that fight or flight that kicks in. And it's rarely lost on us. And this, this is me reading into it. But I think Leah, Leah might have had a dream that one day she would, she would be a part of a family where she would be welcomed, where she would be uh, honored and gathered in. Now, I, I think it's quite likely that Leah didn't want anything to do with this whole arrangement that her father schemed up. Remember, how did Leah become Jacob's wife? Well, she was switched in the marriage bed right at the last moment. I think Leah might have dreamed of being married. Maybe not for love. This is not a society where people, you know, often saw each other. In fact, this story with Rachel and Jacob is one of the few stories where we see this kind of romantic love outside of the Song of Songs. You know, oftentimes people married for economic reasons or they married for, uh, in order to join their families together. But I still think that Leah might have had this dream for her life where she would be honored as a wife, where she could bear children, where maybe even being away from the dysfunction that is still so present in her house. But now she is married to a man that never wanted her in the first place. She is married now to the same man as her sister. Can you imagine? Like you, you, you think that this moment in your life will be the time where you finally are removed from this stuff. And now you're right in the middle of it for the rest of your life. And you can see the ache and the longing in Leah's voice as she names her children. You can see, see how she still longs for this dream to come true. Her first name, she, son, she names Reuben, which means misery. As she reasons, the Lord has looked on my affliction. Surely now my husband will love me. Gosh. She conceives again, this time Simeon, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. Again, Levi, whose name means joined. Which essentially she's saying, like, now he has no choice, right? I've given him three sons. Like, what do I have to do for this guy for him to just notice me? Leah is pleading, crying out hoping she can make something or bring something of worth to this husband of hers to make him see her. I'm reminded of the incredible Bonnie Raitt song, I can't make you love me. I can't make you love me if you don't. I can't make your heart feel something it won't. Leah is in a loveless marriage and nothing she is doing for her husband is enough. 
But something happens. And this is what I want to focus on today. Something happens in between the birth of Levi and the birth of her fourth son, Judah. Her posture changes. It turns from the externals, the things that she wants to bring to her husband, the things that she's trying to do to to somehow fulfill him and to somehow fulfill her own longings. Something changes. And she names her son Judah, which simply means praise. And as Leah reasons, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. This son will not be about how my husband sees me. This son will be about how God sees me. This is a pivotal moment in Leah's life, and I want you to hold on as we kind of pivot away towards Rachel. We continue in verse 30 of chapter 29. It says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, She envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. And Jacob became very angry with Rachel and said, Am I in the place of God? Who has withheld you? Who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Rachel has the affection of her husband, but she has no children. She lashes out at Jacob, Give me children, or I shall die. An ironic statement that will become clear in just a moment. Often, friends, when we are hurt, when we're disappointed, or going through pain, those closest to us become the objects of our disaffection with life. We lash out at those closest to us. We blame them for our pain or our circumstances. And Rachel lashes out at Jacob, Give me kids, give me children or I shall die. She thinks that she, if she can change her circumstances, then she won't feel the way that she does. And Jacob says to her, well, I, I'm not God. I can't do that. Then Jake, and then Rachel has an idea as we continue on into chapter 30. Rachel has an idea. She's going to, to, to take matters into her own hands. And we see this over and over again. And so it says in verse 3, then she said, here is my maid, Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear upon my knees, that I may too have children through her. Now this strikes our modern like perspectives as so weird. But but there was a uh, an accepted practice of surrogacy in this culture, where Rachel giving her maid to Jacob as a wife was was uh, in her conceiving children was actually her conceiving children for Rachel. So I know that's so weird and so lost on us, but that's kind of what's going on here. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. And Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. So she named him Naphtali. Now, and much like Leah... We can see a lot about Rachel's state of mind by the naming of her kids. The first son, birthed by Bilhah, is named Dan, which means vindication or judgment or righteousness. Have you ever just wanted to show people how right you were? I used to think that marriage counseling was this thing where you like go and you tell them your problems, and then they make a ruling. That is not what it is, and for very good reasons, right? But it's just that sense, like, you just want somebody to see. You're like, if I could just have a third party here. Vindication. 
I'm not crazy. No, somebody else in this relationship is, right? And that's what Rachel is experiencing here. She has a son. She's like, yes, thank you, finally. And Rachel names the second son birthed by Bilhah. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. Notice what's going on here. Who does Leah address in the naming of her children? Her husband. Who is Rachel addressing with the naming of her children? Her sister. You see, Leah is trying to earn this thing from her husband that is not coming. And Rachel is trying to, uh, through this competitive spirit, is trying to um, establish herself in the place that she's already in anyway. Like, she has the affection of her husband. She has the, the, the sort of fairy tale marriage, at, at least in this version of society. And yet, she still looks at Leah as a competitor. And when we see, as we go on, verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her own maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. So now we have Leah repeating the same process. Rachel has given her maid to Jacob as a wife. And now Leah's going to do the same thing. Now Jacob has four wives. And again, if you were to read this story and be like, what on earth? I'm with you. And when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune. So she named him Gad, which means like out of me a troop will come. And Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for the women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Again, we pay attention to the names Gad. Good fortune, Asher, happy. Something has changed in Leah's life. Since the birth of Judah, since she said, this time I will praise the Lord, there is this contentment that is seeping in. There is this reckoning with life as it is, not as she, as she wants it to be, that is starting to be present here. And you can see it in the names of her children. Good fortune, happy. She goes to the one, Naphtali, who's named, you know, like, my struggle, my wrestle. She's like, what, you know, what's your name? Wrestler. Struggle. What's your name? Asher? Happy? This is great. And we see, as we continue in this story, verse 14, In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went out, and he found mandrakes in the field, and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, This is Leah talking to Rachel. Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? I mean, you do not take a man's mandrakes, right? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight for your son's mandrakes. We're going to see what's going on here in just a moment. But I want you to notice how many bystanders there are in this story. Bilhah and Zilpah are just like completely passive in this whole story. They have just been treated as objects. Now Jacob is sort of being traded as an object. Rachel says, if you give me what you have, Jacob will stay with you tonight. And it says in verse 16, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come into me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. Right? Friends, this will not happen to you. I promise. So he lay with her that night 
And God heeded Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my hire because I bore, or because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. And Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has given me a good gift. Now my husband will honor me. Because I have borne him six sons, so she named him Zebulun. And afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Now, friends, this is a weird moment in an already super strange story, right? But it was thought in this culture that mandrakes were this kind of aphrodisiac. They had this ability to affect fertility. And Rachel is now willing to do anything that it takes in order to manipulate the situation. She wants children. As she said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. And she says to Rachel, tell your son Reuben to give me some of the mandrakes. And in exchange, Leah, you can have Jacob for the night. And Jacob is such a passive actor in all of this. It's totally absurd. But Leah stays with Jacob that night and she has another son. And again, Leah turns her attention and her posture to God. God has blessed her, she reasons, because she gave Zilpah to Jacob as a wife. Rachel had done the same thing, right? She did it first. But the difference is, is that Leah had already born children. Rachel did this thing out of desperation. Leah did it out of abundance. Then finally, Leah has another son, and she names him Issachar. She says, now my husband will honor me. For Leah, her dream has died of earning Jacob's favor and affection. And we see this over this long arc. We're probably talking a course of about 25 to 30 years in this story. Leah has accepted the disappointment of her life. She has been wounded. She has been used as a tool in one of her father's schemes She has been scorned by her sister, and she has been hated by her husband, but God has seen her all along. God has seen her, and now Leah has seen God. And instead of striving for this fleeting and unreachable thing, she has come to rest in the gifts that God has actually placed in her hand. And what she finds, as she names her last son, is honor. Not love, mind you, but honor. Let's see how things play out with Rachel in verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God heeded her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. It's finally come true. This lifelong dream for Rachel is finally happening. She said to Jacob, give me children or I will die. And now she has it. And she says, as she receives this son into her arms, God has taken away my reproach, yes and amen. And she named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Do you hear it, friends? In the name of Joseph, she receives this thing that she has been desperate for for so long. And her first thought is not thank you, not thank God, but more. Fast forward to Genesis 35, beginning in verse 16. It says, Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth, and she had hard labor. So Rachel is now pregnant with her second child. 
And when she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. When you received Joseph into your arms, you said, May I have another? Rachel's prayers are answered again. And as her soul was departing, for she died, it says in verse 18, she named him Ben-Oni. Remember what she told Jacob before she had any children? Remember what she demanded of him? Give me children or I shall die. Now here's the ironic twist, this masterful storytelling in these writers of Genesis. It's exactly that, the giving of children, that is Rachel's demise. And look at what she names her last child, Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. With her dying breath, Rachel curses. The thing that she wanted most or that she thought she wanted most actually becomes the thing that kills her. It's so bad that Jacob steps in finally. Like it's, it's actually quite strange that the women are naming the children in the story, but there's this like empowerment thing that's happening amidst all this crazy misogyny and patriarchy. There's this empowerment thing happening where the women are naming the children. Rachel's name that she gives her last son is so bad that Jacob finally steps in and says, no, we're not going to call you son of sorrow for the rest of your life and changes his name to Benjamin. So Ecclesia, what are we to make of all of this? This strange, sordid tale filled with mandrakes and polygamy and slaves and patriarchy. What are we to make of the lives of these two women? I think first thing is both women were wounded by life. Both women had experienced disappointment, had experienced failure. Sure, things started out great for Rachel, right? Like, she gets the husband. She gets this person who has affection for her. But then it all went wrong. She had her dream husband who loved and cherished her, but she felt this gaping lack in her life. She thought for sure that there was one thing external to her that if she could just get, and she would get it by any means necessary, that she would then be fulfilled. She struggled with her sister, she manipulated, she lashed out, and eventually she died, cursing, bitter, getting exactly what she thought she wanted, and it still was never enough. I mean, this is a heavy, heavy story. But friends, what I think is going on here is that Rachel was unable to accept her wound. Friends, if you live this life long enough and we could go around the room right now and I would say for the vast majority of us, you could say, when did it happen? When did the disappointment happen? When did the abuse happen? When did the thing that nobody should ever do to you happen? When were you wounded? And if you were in a safe setting, a vulnerable setting, you could say it was then. Friends, we will all be wounded by life even if you are crushing it now. Even if you are just the smartest person in the room at all times, everything you do turns to gold, you're still going to die. None of us makes it out of this place alive. And so what so much God is asking for us is, are we willing to accept? Are we willing to accept our place in life? Are we willing to accept the place that God has put us? It doesn't mean that we lose our agency, our choice, but it means that things happen to us that are outside of our control. Rachel was unable to accept her wound 
From all appearances, she couldn't let the peace that grace brings into her life. She wanted to win, but she didn't realize that in the narrative of God, winning comes not in spite of our wounds, but through them. Friends, for how many of us in here have we convinced ourselves that our wounds are the things that are making us miserable? that are keeping us from the life that we want, that if things would just change, our circumstances would change, then everything would be great. What we see over and over again, what we see in our life, like how many of you ever have ever heard somebody say like, you know, like winning the lottery was the best thing that ever happened to me. Like it just made me a nicer person. Like, no, people talk about the struggles, right? They talk about their failures. They talk about those times where they didn't measure up. We see this over and over again in our culture, and we see it over and over again in the scriptures. This life will wound us all. And some of you are sitting here today, and you know that in your bones because you've already, you've already tasted it. You've already experienced that. Rachel thought that the wound was out there. That it was her inability to have children. That it was her circumstances. But in reality, the wound was inside all along. And the only way we begin to allow grace to heal and to bring peace is to first accept and acknowledge and name it that we all get wounded. For Leah, she was broken from the start. We see this progression in the naming of her sons as her first, first son is literally named in hopes that her husband will love her. I mean, how... Like, how painful is that? Like, hopefully now my husband will see me. This man who is who's sleeping with me will acknowledge my presence and my existence. She is wounded. She is second rate. She is hated. And she hopes by performing, by doing it all right, that she will finally be loved. And it just doesn't work. But for Leah, something sets in. She accepts her reality. And finds that where our wounds are, where our brokenness is, that's where God is too. That God sees us in that place. We see this in the naming of her fourth son, Judah. This time, I will praise the Lord. We, Leah walks the slow walk of faithfulness, the long obedience in the same direction. And through her, though her circumstances never change, she finds contentment and joy. And the naming of her last son, Issachar, tells us that no matter what Jacob thinks of her, no matter his posture towards her, she knows who she is. She is worthy of honor. Leah is no longer beholden to her husband's perspective of her. She says, now this man has no choice. I am worthy of honor. Not because things have changed, but because she has seen the, the, the reality of accepting her wounds. Leah finds healing not from her wounds, but in her wounds. And in her wounds, the wounds of Leah, not only Leah finds healing, but the whole world. Because out of the line of Leah, and this is like the really incredible part of the story. Out of that fourth son named Praise comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. The long-awaited Jesus of Nazareth. The fulfillment to the promise of Abraham. The one who's going to heal every single wound. Who will take all of our wounds upon his shoulders. The one who will declare to us once and for all that no matter our circumstances, no matter what we've been through, is that God sees us and he knows and he has been there. As Jesus dies on a cross, we find him not cursing, 
like Rachel. We find him not uh, throwing uh, lobs and jabs. We find him blessing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do, friends. This is the gospel story. Not that we won't suffer, but in all of our suffering, that God will be with us and will be God for us. That Jesus bears the wounds of his cross for all of time as a sign that he has overcome. And so, as we wrap up this morning, we move towards the community table. I, I, I don't have a great call for you. I find this stuff to be uh, so just kind of present. And so, friends, if you're wounded here this morning, I don't have a fix for you. I don't have a, hey, if you try this, I mean, Rachel tries it, right? But what I have for you is a promise is that over the long arc of faithfulness is that God is going to come to you again and again and again. And what we see in this beautiful story is that he comes to both sisters. He comes to Leah. He comes to Rachel. He meets them where they are. God is not telling you, you need to have all of this figured out right now, that you need to be healed, you need to be completely changed. What he's saying is, I will be with you. And so this morning, Maybe you could begin a process of naming whatever it is that you think that if it were to be fixed or if it were to change, that you would be healed, that you would be fixed and changed because so often we find that that's a myth. And for friends, for those of you who haven't experienced that, good. Like what we see in the life of Leah is, is this impulse to praise God is to turn every good gift back towards him. And so if you're in this season and you're saying, I don't, I don't feel wounded, that's amazing. I'm so grateful for you. Turn your posture and your reality back to God and just say these two simple words, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for who you are. What we find in the midst of all of this is that God He's walking alongside of us, coming to us, changing and transforming us. And what I find is that I don't want to be a bitter old man. I don't want to curse with my dying breath. I don't want to be the kind of person who's so riddled with fear, so riddled with anxiety in my old age, unable to accept the woundedness that is a long life, unable to accept the weakness that is living a long life want to turn my life back towards God and say, this time I will praise you. Forevermore, I will praise you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.